Hello and welcome. My name is Brian, and you're listening to Friends in Music with Brian Doherty, a podcast about all things music with a particular focus on music industry friends and colleagues. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on my show, please feel free to get in touch. And thank you for listening. My guest today is musician Tony Maimoni. Tony is a bassist, producer, songwriter, and the owner of Studio G, a commercial recording studio in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. As a bass player, Tony has worked with Pierre Ubu, Frank Black, Bob Mould, The Mekons, and They Might Be Giants, just to name a few. It was with They Might Be Giants that I first met Tony. In this episode, Tony weaves his tale of starting out in Cleveland and working his way to be one of the premier bass players of our time. We welcome Tony to the show. So, Tony, so great to see you and hear you. And um, I know a lot about you, but I think it would be interesting for others to know more about you. So just at the top of this conversation, how would you, can you briefly describe for the listeners who you are and a bit about what you do? And keep, keep in mind, we'll get more into this, get deeper into this later, but just a quick, quick synopsis of who you are, what you do. All right, I'm a I'm a bass player, engineer, producer here in New York City. Um, I've been here since 1986. Uh, I started playing music um, in 1974. Uh, played in a bunch of bands. Uh, one of them was with you, Brian. Um, That's right. And uh, kind of got off the road around 1994 and built the first Studio G. And uh, in 2012, uh, we moved from that location over to our location now, which is in Greenpoint. And it's a, uh, you know, it's a 10,000 square foot facility, two floors. Um, We've got uh, three recording studios upstairs. And we've got a number of production rooms and a couple of other recording studios downstairs. So that has been the major uh, thrust uh, professionally. I, I still play bass and I still like to make tracks, um, but the studio's taken a lot of time and energy. And Sounds like uh, it. It's, and I feel like it's really just starting to really blossom now. Um, so that's, that's kind of who I am. I mean, aside from that, I'm a dad. I know you're a dad as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's another big part of my picture. Uh, I'm sure it is with you too. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it sounds like the studio. I remember when you started the studio business and um, I, I, saw your, I saw how much work you put into it at the very, very beginning. And I can only imagine how much work it is to maintain an operation like that with multiple studios and stuff. Yeah. Interestingly enough, now that it's this huge place, you know, with, uh, you know, Mike Rippey is like our, uh, our tech who's on premise, um, you know, and I've got, you know, Joel Hamilton, uh, he and I, um, partnered up in the year 2000 um, and Chris Cabetta uh, came on board here about six years ago 
and we've got all these tremendous uh, engineers and assistants here, it's actually so much easier now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can't believe how easy it is. Like the other day, I spent two hours working on a bass track. Um, the other day, I spent about an hour working on your track, which all I right. still haven't finished, but all of a sudden now, what's happening after all these years, I am finally getting back to sitting down with my bass, with a keyboard. Um, you know, I've been playing drums and just, just to kind of uh, sharpen my rhythmic skills. Uh, by the way, I think anybody who's a musician should be able to play a groove on the kit. I mean, Absolutely. I think that, I think it's so helpful for a musician. So there's all these new things because my kids um, study in drums and piano. So I'm seeing this happen and I'm going, oh wow, I'm gonna get right in here next to him and, and just uh, enjoy this renewal. Um, so um, interestingly, now that it's this kind of sprawling enterprise, um, I'm getting back to what brought me to music in the first place, which was just the enjoyment of playing music and hearing the sound and especially playing with other people and playing for people. That was always, um, that was always a big thing for me. And, and I know for you too, uh, you know, there's something about getting out there in front of an audience and, playing some music for them and seeing them enjoy it and move to it. And, and uh, you know, I feel like this is such a wonderful experience. And now I'm finally getting back into that more. <laughs> it's, um, it's something that I think as musicians, we always are trying. It's, a, it's, a, it's always like a struggle of the balance to see mm -hmm. how we can maintain this and, and, always come back to playing music you know absolutely and what i've been finding is that there's no way for someone who's not in their 20s anymore who has to work for a living who has a family there's no way you're going to be able to do that agreed without, without some kind of time management because you know okay you're not going to have two hours to sit down and work on a beat. So you learn, A, how to work more efficiently, and like you find yourself working in smaller segments of time. So instead of going, well, geez, I only have 20 minutes, uh, I'm just gonna go look at my Instagram. No, like grab the guitar and do some playing. Don't bother setting up all the gear, just get your voice memo on your phone. Boom, tune up your instrument and go. And all of a sudden, at the end of a month, you'll have a dozen ideas. That's, that that's, that's such a great point because I think it's, um, well, it's definitely my tendency to go, eh, I've only got 15 minutes. What am I going to do? Me too. I may Me as too. well just uh, clean the kitchen again or, you yeah. know, I don't know, do some, fold some laundry. I don't know. But, but uh, the idea of having a, 
a protocol where you you know either have an instrument set up, an acoustic guitar, your keyboard is plugged in, so it's turned on right away, so you're not like fussing with the technology, mm-hmm. where you can yeah. just kind of set up and get something out, you know, get it out. That's a, that's a great point. So, do you think you do that? Would Would you say that you do that on a daily basis? Mm. It's not daily at this point, but it's definitely increasing. Um, I really feel like I'm transitioning from, because the way Studio G always worked was, um, you know, I was in charge of the finances and and steering that part of the ship. And um, that just took so much time and energy and, you know, getting the taxes right and, you know, getting things straight with the bookkeeper and the accountant. Uh, And now that, you know, Chris Cubetta has stepped in and shouldered an awful lot of that. And now we have Chris Delolio at Mastermind Management who's helping us book the studio. Because I used to book the studio as well. All right. That's a tremendous task. Yeah, it was basically, I was the studio manager. And in all of that, I mean, when we moved here, that was, that was basically the year that Milo was born. So like Mary always says, like we birthed two separate bees, <laughs> you, know, you know, Studio G, like two and, and, you know, and Milo. So I, you know, I'm st- I'm, I've been getting up at six and going down to the park and I've been learning about some, you know, different kind of things. Like I've been experimenting with Qigong and these stretching and breathing exercises. So starting Mm -hmm. off like that, and then you get done with that, it's seven o'clock in the morning. And depending on what's happening, like I might take Milo running or I might just jump right in on an instrument. In this case, I'm jumping right in on a mix that I'm going to, because the early morning is like such a great time. But yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm making this shift now where I don't have to put so much energy into the running and the management of Studio G. So I'm finding myself, I'm starting to write some, I'm starting to write with my buddies from Gachu Peen, John Petro and Lynn Wright. Nice. Um, and I'm starting to collaborate like that song that you sent me. Yeah. Um, you know, this... Wait. In, and then in this whole uh, new paradigm that we find ourselves in, I think uh, we're going to be doing more of that. I've been trading, tra- uh, like I've been sending bass uh, tracks over to uh, Yuval Gabay, who lives in Jerusalem now. Oh, wow. Tell, please uh, give him my regards. I will, man. I will. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of that sort of thing going on and uh, slowly shifting into where it all began, which for me was someone left this cheap little Japanese bass, which I wish I had now, um, this Univox bass, which had a wooden neck, but the, the body was plastic. They left it uh, at my apartment in Fort Lauderdale. I had a place on the beach. This was, in the early 70s and uh the the uh 
the guitar bag had a cord in, in it and everything, and the stereo had, had a jack, and I knew nothing about any of that sort of thing, but I plugged it in just to see what would happen, and boom, 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 there's the bass coming through the speakers, and I remember I'd been listening to this Rolling Stone a bootleg. I think it's called Cocksucker Blues, something like that. Like, it's got that song in it, and mm -hmm. uh, so they're playing they're playing like it's 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 the stones playing like at a gig and they're doing you know some of their songs but they're also doing some of these old chestnuts so i start thumping along with the bass and you know after just like a few minutes i'm like oh wow this is really easy and uh one thing led to the other and um i started playing the records and really started to uh you know, feel that vibe. And uh, I moved back up to Cleveland a few years later um, just to kind of help my mom through some stuff she was going through. And uh, what I got in return uh, for that, for, you know, for helping mom was I fell into this whole uh, group of musicians and artists that were beginning to like foment this movement in Cleveland, which would become, you know, like the punky new wave thing that happened, you know, all over the country at that time. Yeah. Um, and there was a guy who lived upstairs, Al Albert Dennis, who was an amazing bass player, like a Ron Carter level bass player. And he happened to just live upstairs from you. Yeah. He lived just upstairs. by coincidence. He lived upstairs from me. The guy who lived downstairs from me was a writer who knew Bob Dylan. It's like <laughs> the, uh, the, the guy in the front, like this was this huge old building called the Plaza on Prospect Avenue. The, uh, the landlords, David Bloomquist and Alan Ravenstein, David was uh, an artist and um, Alan Ravenstein was experimenting with uh, EML synthesizers. Like he would, you know, just play the synthesizer and just watch it through an oscilloscope and and you could see the waves could you see he could sine see, waves and right he could see the waves and stuff and alan was uh like not really a musician but certainly someone who i always thought was a great writer um was somebody who was gravitating towards doing something musical and scott kraus was in the building he was the the drummer from Perugu, who I played with for almost 20 years. Um, Peter Loftner lived across the hall. And I know we were, we were, you mentioned mentors, and I would say Peter was one of my first mentors uh, in the life, and especially in my musical life, because, uh, you know, I would practice. At this point, I was playing the bass for a couple hours a day. I was playing piano for a couple hours a day, and then I was playing guitar for a couple of hours a day. And then I'd go bartend at night, like to make money. And, uh, you know, and so the guys in Perugu, which, which would be- Were they a band? I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're bringing up so many great points. And I, I, I'm trying to remember, uh, I would like to remember all of them because I want to ask you about them. But uh, the, was Perugu a band at that point? Or, or, or were you in at the origins? No, Perubu wasn't a band at that point um, because this was 1974. 
think Piarubu really started, I think the first recording, I'm not a thousand percent sure of this, but I believe it was like 1975. Um, the recordings that I did with Piarubu were like in 76. So there were a couple of different, um, couple of different people playing bass in Perubu. They were both guitar players. And the way I ended up uh, with Perubu was because nobody really wanted to play bass. Everybody really wanted to play more guitar. Kind of, and, kind of, like, kind of like the uh, violist. Everybody wants to play violin, <laughs> right. and not, not viola, right. but, but maybe exactly. that's what you should go for, you know? Right, and so, and so Peter, who was the guitar player, in Rocket from the Tombs, that's what it was. At that mm -hmm. point, um, David Thomas and Peter were in a band called Rocket from the Tombs. And Peter, he'd hear me playing, and he came right across the hall, brought his Strat and a six pack and some records. Like I remember he brought like this reggae sampler, uh, and he brought um, Miles Davis's On the Corner. Those were the two that really stuck out. and. Uh, we just started playing and, you know, I hadn't played that much. I'd played a little, but Peter was like a walking encyclopedia of music. Like he knew his rock and roll. He could play acoustic, he could finger pick. So anyway, I had this really, uh, this, I, I was in this environment where there were all these artists and musicians and everybody was just kind of starting out. It was, like just like a perfect moment to be there. Can I can I just in, interrupt you because because I want to continue. I just want to pause that for a moment and maybe continue on. But can you describe like so? You, did you did you come did you do you come to this building just by fate? Did somebody say hey so and so needs a roommate? That's a great place for musicians and artists. How did you come into this? Like how is it that you come back to Cleveland? You find the one building that has like. The, this incredible, you know, um, you know, hub of artistry. Well, it was funny because before I went to Florida, I was living downtown with a bunch of the same musicians. We were living in a house. It was the only house probably like within eight blocks in any direction. We were, it was just this industrial, very kind of bleak, area mm -hmm. the, and then the building that was like three blocks to the west was the jail and we used to sit <laughs> we used to sit on our porch and these poor guys would be yelling down hey get me a cheeseburger <laughs> it was really just it was a, it was a thing and so when i left i lived in florida for a couple of years did some stuff and came back i moved to uh like a suburb of cleveland and then I met one of the guys that I knew, and he told me about this building, the plaza at 32nd and Prospect, downtown Cleveland, where there were rooms to be had and there was lots of uh, kindred souls. So that's how I found out about it. And then- uh, Hey, did the, land, did, did the landlord get, get his rent? Did he what? <laughs> so with all, all the artists in the building, I was just wondering if the landlord got, got the rent. You know, I had this. Or was it so apartment. cheap that, you know, was it a steal? Yeah. I had an apartment like with bay windows in three of the rooms 
um, oak floors, cherry woodwork. And these oh guys were restoring this beautiful old building, which that was one of the things I would do. I would do some work for them. And then a lot of the times that would cover my rent because I, I think gotcha. I was only paying 500 a month for this place that had a little balcony on the east side. The west side, you had these amazing uh, vistas of the downtown and the setting sun. It was really nice. It was a great moment. So did you have like a, during this time, <clears throat> did you have a, like a pl plan? Was it like, I am here, it's 1973. In two years, I want to be playing in a band. I want to play some piano, some, uh, some guitar, some bass. Like what was swirling around? Are we just kind of going through the moment like jam sessions here, a recording there and so on? No, I definitely... I definitely wanted to be a bass player, Brian. There was no two ways around it. And like Albert Dennis uh, agreed to give me some lessons. So once he got me practicing scales and stuff, um, I, I shedded for quite some time before I really jumped out into the uh, like the general populace and i remember right, right. my first jam session you know we're at this loft and everyone's playing it's kind of punky but there's definitely like really good players there and albert was there and i was there and somebody was playing and albert comes up to me and i'll never forget this you know albert's like such a beautiful person these really dark really piercing eyes he looks at me he goes so and he says in a really gentle voice, he goes, oh, you gonna go, you gonna go jam? <laughs> and I scary. was like, so scared, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to paint the wrong picture here. He's like with this gentle, like beautiful, like Sesame Street kind of guy. Yeah. But, but you know, I, you know, he's a very, he was a very intense player. But his intensity would come out in his playing, you know. But anyway, he says, so you're going to jam? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. He says, go on. And I go, so, you know, when, when your teacher says, go on, you go. So I came up there, you know, I plugged in, and everybody kind of looks at me. Nobody knew me. And uh, I said, want to do something in E? Everyone said, nice, yeah, nice sure. open string. Yeah, you know, <laughs> nice open string, you know, on the P base. And so, uh, so I, you know, so I don't know if the drum, I think the drummer started a groove. If the drummer starts a groove, I can always play. Yeah. Impossible not to play for me. Um, and so I hit that open E string and we were off to the races. So that was like the first big thing that happened. And I think, I think I did okay, and, and I felt really great about it. And then uh, the, the next big musical thing that happened was I met Bob Kidney, the, uh, you know, the singer, songwriter, leader of the Numbers Band. Uh -huh. And Peter introduced us. And you know, Bob is one of the most intense, one of the most talented um, artist musicians that I've ever met in my life. And so I had been going down to see Bob and Bob had been playing me those old Robert Johnson tunes. After the gig, we'd go out to his house. He lived um, 
lived out in the country and there was like a fire pit in the back and we'd make a fire and he was playing me these beautiful Robert Johnson songs and Mississippi John Hurd and Reverend Gary Davis, all this blues stuff that was just seeping into my soul. And then I was jamming with Peter and then Peter left, um, left Perubu because at this point Perubu had begun um, and Peter started a band called Friction with Anton Fear and myself. Mm-hmm. And we spent the summer uh, putting together a set and rehearsing at Anton's house in the basement. And then we went out and played a party for, uh, for this guy at Coventry Books. Um, I think it was Coventry Books. It was just like, a, you know, it was a gig. It was my first real gig. We played television songs and Bo Diddley songs and, you know, we Patti Smith song, some covers and a few of Peter's tunes. And David and Tom were there and they were checking out the scene. And after the set, they asked me if I wanted to come and jam with Perugu. And that was where, that's like, that's how it all happened. And in answer to your question about what I wanted to do, I definitely wanted to play I definitely wanted to, I wanted to be on the big stage. I mean, the first band I saw in the eighth grade were the Beatles, you know, and. um, I I remember, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I do have a memory of you recalling that concert. Yeah. Once in a conversation to me and it's something about John Lennon egging the 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 audience. can, can, Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I remember it was, it happened very fast because I think the, I I couldn't believe it. I mean, I can't believe it in retrospect when I think about what the PA system was, the way they were going to deliver like the sounds of the the drums and the vocals and and the guitar amps, of course, because this was in Cleveland Stadium, 83,000 seater, a huge, huge uh, building. So the Beatles come out. You know, there's like, just, it's like daytime from the flashbulbs. And the screaming is so crazy loud, you can barely hear the Beatles. This PA system that they have, it looks just like a megaphone, only it's 10 feet high. (laughs) And they had them at every 20 yard line. So you can imagine the sound was just like pretty terrible. And you've got all the people screaming. The Beatles, obviously, they can't hear themselves. It's amazing when you listen to recordings from the concert. They can barely hear themselves. They're still singing pretty much on key. But anyway, after about the sixth song, someone jumps the fence and goes racing across the field. And, you know, 10 cops, like, tackle them. And then another kid runs. Then another kid runs. And then another kid runs. And all of a sudden everybody's coming down out of the stands, jumping the fence and charging the stage. (laughs) You know, Paul and George are exiting. They're like diving into this trailer that's parked behind the stage that's in the middle of the football field. Um, Just as I get to the stage, Ringo is pulled off of his drum throne like by about three or four girls. Like he almost falls down. And John Lennon is standing there like with his legs, like, you know, just like 
spread a stride, you know, and he's got that Rickenbacker and he's playing like, you know, the Chuck Berry, dun, 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 <laughs> just hammer on like with one hand and just motioning to everybody, come on down, come on down. Because the Beatles <laughs> knew if they could create enough mayhem, the concert would be over, which was exactly what happened. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the impact that the Beatles had because I, I, w I had always really been into music and, you know, I had a paper out like from the time I was in like the fifth grade and I'd get home from delivering my papers and there was an old Zenith recorder in the kitchen and I would turn it on low and just sit there kind of with my ear to it so I wouldn't wake anybody up and just spin the dial and fine tunes and listen. So I was into music, but then I got my first single, which was Love Me Do. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that was amazing. And then Meet the Beatles came out. And then that just, that just changed everything. And I was so uh, fascinated by like photographs of those guys on Ed Sullivan, like where, you know, I was looking at George's country gentleman, Gretchen, it had all those knobs and switches mm -hmm. and the big speed. And it was just such an intriguing thing. And, uh, you know, but what happened was, you know, I got, a, I got an acoustic guitar like everybody else. And, um, you know, started to, you know, try to learn how to play. And I think it was just before my time, like there wasn't anybody in Garfield Heights that I knew that was really into playing music. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, went through high school and ended up like roadieing for some bands, just trying to be as close to it as I could. And, you know, I guess like deep down inside, maybe I doubted that I had what it took because the guitar just wasn't happening for me at that time. Mm -hmm. And it all kind of came back to this person leaving this little Japanese base in my apartment in 1973. I feel like that's where the, the needle comes down on the record for me as a musician. That's a great, that's a great analogy. Do you, do, did you tell us if you still have that bass or not? I don't, but it's a, <laughs> it's a Univox bass. Univox is this really early Japanese company that has become revered because they made stuff really well. And it was made cheaply, but it was made well. And the sounds of these instruments, um, they made delays, they made, they made, uh, you know, like guitar. Built in, like built in, built into the instrument? No, I mean like a whole line of musical oh, gotcha. instruments. Um, and it was funny because they called it Univox. And of course, Vox is the company that made the amps that the Beatles used yeah. and, uh, and all of that. So, yeah, the Beatles, man, they really, uh, they really rang the bell. I, um, I would like you've played with so many great bands and I've seen you before I even met you. 
I knew of you and saw you play bass with Pierre Ubu at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. And this was probably 1989, I want to say, 89, 90. Yeah, that's right. When I was, that was a, and at Maxwell's was such a great place, right, right, Brian? We could, we could go on and on and talk about the, the, <laughs> the venues and the clubs and Maxwell's and, but I remember seeing you and I didn't know much about Perubu and I'll just tell, tell, tell you quickly. I, 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 your show was sold out and I, I, I don't know if you guys had played two sets or not, but I just showed up anyway. I showed up like 30, 40 minutes later and just stood outside and somebody literally came out like they 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 had to go they gave me their ticket stub they just right. kind of offer, offered it to me i didn't ask anybody i was literally just standing there somebody said would you like a ticket stub and then absolutely and and i went in and i enjoyed the show immensely and it kind of like you know i want you to describe Pierubu to others but it was kind of kind of a, it was an eye opener to say the least to to watch Perubu and how you guys work together. And um, anyway, it was just very, very exciting. And then a couple of years later, you and I end up in a band together, but, but do you want to talk about Perubu and then maybe we could go into Bob mold and. Yeah, because that some was other the things. year, that was the year um, that I started working with Bob mold. And it was funny that period, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92 it seemed like uh the dream of being a professional bass player really you know came home because um and just the way the touring schedules work i was able to tour with the mekons i was able to tour and record with perubu i was able to tour and record with bob mold and somehow all the schedules fit which as you know they rarely do yeah and it went yeah. on for three or four years like a couple of records with bob a couple of records with perubu like a big european tour with uh the mekons and um and then a bunch of other stuff but so what comes was, what comes your you're in perubu you're you're playing and by the way just just to note you describe your journey starting around 1973. By the time you reach 88, you've already put in a good 15 years of passion and practice and jam sessions and everything. So you've done a lot of your work. And <clears throat> now you reach the Pier Ubu time. How, did, how, how do you get, like, what, what, what happens? Bob Mole just sees you with Pier Ubu and goes, hey, you know, well, come and record with us. Well, the thing about Perubu, Perubu for me really started, we went to Europe in 1977. So the funny thing is coming to Cleveland, back to Cleveland in like late 73, and then finding myself, you know, at the Royal College of Printing in London in 1977, um, you know, with the band's name on the cover of NME. It happened. <laughs> That's it, it happened fast for me. And, um, you know, sometimes I think back that, you know, it happened so fast that, uh, you know, I was very, very young at the time. And, uh, 
like we all were and kind of wild in the streets. And sometimes like I wish that, you know, maybe I would have just stayed in London for a while and just mm -hmm. played with a bunch of bands over there, which I could have done, but I didn't know that I could do that. <laughs> you right. know? Um, but anyway, fast forwarding up to 89, I think what happened in Bob's case was uh, Anton Fear suggested me uh, for that gig. Um, that's what happened there. And you and guys had been in a band before Perubu, before you were in Perubu. You just yeah, mentioned, yeah, right? An Anton came and uh, did a record and uh, a tour with Perubu when uh, for the the Art of Walking year years. Um, you know, Scott had dropped out of the band, and uh, Anton had stepped up um, for making the record art of walking and for doing the subsequent touring uh, so that was my connection with him and then also we had played with peter um you know in friction so anton and i definitely uh, knew each other and was was bob from cleveland or is he do you think musicians and artists were like hey i there's all this stuff going on in cleveland i want to i want to go there too no i uh, uh bob i believe when we did the first um when we did the first record workbook he had a house in uh minneapolis and i kind of think that's where bob mold was from and uh you know he was just coming off all of his years with husker do uh -huh. um, that's where bob hails from that was his big other band um you know before he stepped out on his own um and the thing with the mekons the Mekons are another really special, special band. And uh, John Langford, um, you know, who's like the, one of the principal, like, lead, and the leader of the, of the band, like they're a very socialist organization. And, and a very um, funny, good-natured um, <laughs> gentleman, to say the just, least, right? He's just fabulous, right? And so yeah. John was like a, John was a, big big influence on me um he because in perubu it uh, you know there were there was there, there there's always a tension in a band but like sometimes in perubu it seemed like if we weren't uh if we were having fun if things were going well uh the band sometimes would think that maybe we're not working hard enough or you know or you know like this kind of sort of like self-destructive thing like where um like i remember the buzzcocks asked us to do a world tour with them and um you know Paragu didn't want to open for anyone at oh, the time yeah and so you know that was Paragu, but now being in the van with john langford and 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 sally and tom and and Mitch and everyone, um, you know, here was a group of people that were really, really celebrating the whole process. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody has their down days or their moods, but there was a joy that I was part of in, in the Mekons that I hadn't experienced before. And, would, uh, it, would, 
I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but with bands like just in general, uh, and maybe you can explain it to to listeners. I mean, do you end up writing songs with with the artists you work with? Do you end up? Is it clear to somebody say, "Oh, I only want you to play bass. Uh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest uh, all the arrangements and and I'm gonna write all the songs." Like, or is or are some situations different where they're like, "Tony, would you like to come up with a bridge for this song and so on?" Well, I think it's. Um... You know, I think it's from case, it's like a case to case kind of thing. Like if you're coming into a situation as a musician um, and uh, let's say someone asks you to play drums or someone asks you to play bass on their record, um, you know, the first thing you always ask is, well, are there some charts? And they go, yeah, I've got charts. I'll send them over. And, and, and- and they usually look look like scribble on like in, in like a composition notebook, right? Scribble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, it's <laughs> you know, it's like the their chords, you know. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, so, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. And what's so funny too is you'll get somebody, <laughs> you know, you get somebody that has their song, and their song is you know A minor to D seventh. That's the verse. And then the chorus, it goes to E. And you're not sure if it's E major or E minor, you know, until they tell you. (laughs) And and then a lot of the times, rhythm sections, like people that I've worked with, drummers and myself, you know, we're suggesting breaks. We're suggesting bridges. It's like, wow, what if we go to C sharp and make a little bridge here? Yeah. And in most cases, most cases, people give us the credit and give us a little, our little share of the publishing. So there's a difference like when you're being asked, though, to come in on a session or come in on a record and play bass to, hey, you know, I'm thinking about making a record. Do you have any time to, you know, work on it with me? That's, that's like a different kind of a proposal, isn't it? Yes, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, and and that's a great point. That as I used to, con- I used to refer to myself as a side musician at times. And and, and yeah. I, really, I mean, you're never Me really too. a side musician. You're you're never a side musician. You're always an essential part of the mix because at time, you know, one day you may contribute a great deal for the composition. Another day you may come up with a great arrangement idea the another day you could bring a song into the session so i think it's um i don't know I've, it's just a little paradigm shift yeah but remember yeah. how we used to in the van we also always used to talk about side man's lament <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what i do i i want i want to talk about i, I do want to talk about us working with they might be giants and and i do want to i did want to feature you on this but because we know each other so well we we have to talk about they might be giants before we get there i have a couple couple questions just like random random questions if you work with you so you work with Pirubu, you work with bob mold you work with the mekons how does at what point is it time to move on? You make a couple of records with Bob Mould. What is it? Did, did he go into sugar at that point? Or does he just call you up one day and say, Tony, I'm just, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tour for a year. What, I mean, what, what happens? Lay it out, lay it out for the, us as if we're flies on the wall. 
Well, it's it's different with everyone. Now, like with Perubu, um, with Perubu, um, it was 1992. We were in Cleveland doing the story of my life. And, you know, I had made the two records with Bob. Um, I had done like this tour uh, with Perubu, which was the reason why I hadn't stayed on with the Mekons was I had made this commitment to Perubu to play bass on the 1991 tour and felt like I should do that. So um, that was like one of those moments where you, you know, you're at a fork in the road. So you make a choice. You're given, you, you know, make, and you, you make, make a choice. choice. And at the time, I, I, can, I can add to this uh, because I've done it myself as a musician, as a hired uh, musician, that you make a choice and at the, it really, its effects are more, um, are more relevant as you look back, in it, back on it in time. Right, because in the moment you may think, "Ah, oh, well, I'll, I'll miss this. I'll miss this Bob Mole tour, or I'll miss this session, and I'll just finish the, finish up Perubu." But then later on, you realize that maybe a lot, many more things have changed. You know. Well, yeah, because I mean, in the case of the Mekons, um, I don't know. They're just that is like they're like they're just like a super special group, and I've really grown uh you know close to john over the years as you have you know i mean john's really busy i don't see him that much but whenever i do see him i feel like i'm with a brother um but uh, would i do it any differently now um you know i i don't really try to think in terms like that but you do have these moments i remember when i was finishing the walls in the first studio studio g and uh, I got a call from Butch Vig's manager to go out and tour with Garbage. And, oh, wow. uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. But in the back and forth, what, what, what Garbage was able to offer me was it wasn't enough for me to stop my work on the studio. And you were, um, and you were, uh, and just so we all know, you were essentially starting. You were a, a sole proprietor, starting your own business. So if you had gone on tour, you would have had to shut everything down, right? Am I right? Exactly. Like, and I was prepared to do that, but you know, like getting back to the Giants, they had treated us so well. And so uh, with so much really like generosity uh, compared to what a lot of the other people were paying out there that what garbage was offering was just uh, was, was garbage. Was, <laughs> it wasn't enough. <laughs> no, I to know. Get me to put down my paintbrush. <laughs> we didn't mean know. that. <laughs> um, but you know, it's funny when I went to see them play here in New York, um, you know, Butch had me, you know, had me come as a guest and check them out. They had a kid who looked like he was about 20 years old playing bass. He was jumping up and down like his feet were springs. He was so happy to be on stage. Yeah. And I thought to myself, 
I made the right decision because him, yeah. this guy's so happy and he's not worried about the money. He's probably still living with his parents. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or maybe he has a, maybe he lives in downtown Cleveland, you know, in Cleveland in that building you used to live in where, you know, for almost no rent. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you've talked, we've, we've, we've touched on TMBG and I want to say a couple things before I, before I ask you a question about the killer shrews, but one is that I'm, I'm on your Wikipedia page right now and they might be giants is not listed at all. Are you aware of that? No, no, I'm not. I need to, if, like, how does it, how does it you, work with Wikipedia, with, with, with uh, Wikipedia? Can people just add stuff? I, you know what? Um, Maybe a listener can email you or tell or or tell us or provide a comment. But once, about twelve years ago, I had somebody like just get in touch with me out of the blue, and this girl was was editing and revising musicians. This was her passion, like this was her thing: editing and revising the Wikipedia pages of musicians, and like she would cite sources and stuff. So she wow. asked if it, she. I paid her a small fee and she asked uh, for my approval and some information and she updated my Wikipedia page, which is now way, way out of date. But I think, I, I think that that's the premise of Wikipedia is that anybody can just go in and edit. I think so. So maybe you can go in and edit. I don't know. Yeah. I need to jump in there because they might be giants were great. Um, they were, they were great to work for. And especially, you know, when you look back, um, they were paying us really well. Um, a lot of bands were going out for half of what, you know, the Giants were paying. And um, they're, they're both a couple great guys. Like, I'm sorry I don't see them more, you know? Well, let, let, let's actually, so uh, let's, let's, open, let's open up the TMBG conversation officially. And all so right. now you've, you've played with all these bands. You have a name for yourself. You... If I'm correct, you somehow managed to to get to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and and I'm telling everybody who's listening, Tony is really is really the first guy who lived in Williamsburg. For real, right? <laughs> you were for for real the first person to be like Williamsburg. You made it happen, and you lived on like <laughs> South First Street or something, didn't you? We I lived on Grand Street, which is right next to South First, which everybody knew was. That was um, that was the down and dirty man. Yeah, it was not a but but there was there was a certain amount of joy and fun and this. I mean, even though it was, it may have been a little dangerous. But I remember you 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 had like a a car, like a big sedan. Yeah. <laughs> And, and just, just so if I could just let, let listeners in on to like, you know, on, on what I, my impression of Tony is like, Tony, like was, was the mayor of, of his neighborhood, you know, the unofficial mayor, he knew where to park his car. He, you know, p people would come out of restaurants and delis to greet him on the sidewalk. Hey, Tony, good morning. How you doing? And um, so you just had this, um, you know, larger than life aspect about you very friendly and and i remember pick, picking you up at that at that apartment 
like meeting you on the street to take you to rehearsal or something. And uh, so anyway, you can, you get to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Now here you are in Williamsburg. And so what brings you to Williamsburg, first of all, and then tell us how you get to the Giants. Well, what happened was I was on tour with, um, with David Thomas and George Cartwright. Was and, playing and David Thomas ball. is the singer from Peru, but just, just so we, Correct. yeah. And, uh, Gero Yellen, uh, yes. amazing cello player, and George Cartwright were some of the guys in the band. And George, I was telling George that I was thinking about moving to New York. And he said, well, I'm going to be uh, on the road in June. So if you want to take my apartment, you can. Just feed my cats for me, would you? And so... <laughs> I came up to his place, was on 13th Street between 1st and 2nd, and stayed there for a month. And in, in, in Manhattan. In Manhattan. Okay, gotcha. Uh-huh. And what happened was George, George Cartwright, told Mark Uriu, who owned um, a high end painting company, um, they would paint like, you know, the, uh, you know, like the modern museum of arts, like head administrator, they would, they would glaze his foyer, you know, or they would uh, paint the, uh, you know, they were into uh, doing all these really high-end finishes. And George told Mark that I was going to be staying in his place. And Mark was a huge Perugu fan. So he said, well, tell Tony, you know, if he needs any work to, you know, let me know, you know, because we, we would love to have him. So I ended up doing that. I worked for Mark for several years while I was kind of, you know, stoking the fire, like from 86 to 88. I remember in 88, I was getting so busy that I, I didn't work for Mark anymore. But Mark Uriu, he's another great soul. He has kept so many musicians afloat, like lets you go away on your tour, and then when you come home, you can just step right back into that's, your job. That's great. So, so you piece through, piecing things together with some part-time work, and thankfully you had an employer that understood, that and, understood it. Yeah. And, and I met Greg Giratano, who worked for Mark, and Greg told me that, if I wanted, I could stay where his girlfriend's girlfriend's uh, boyfriend had a building. And so I took a room there, and that was on Metropolitan Avenue and Drake, which was right around the corner from the building where I got my first apartment. Like I stayed there for the summer and then I heard about this apartment that came up. It was like a railroad apartment for 248 bucks a month. (laughs) The good old days. Yeah. But it was a rough, that building was right next to the uh, building where Serpico, you know, got, got shot. So it was a rough neighborhood. Now, of course, you know, if, you know, that, I mean, Williamsburg is like Disneyland, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Crazy. Suburban kids come in there. And uh, and um, I'm, I'm not sure I could afford an apartment there now. Well, most, a lot of people can't. And uh, like the going rate for an apartment here 
is like 2,800 bucks for like a one bedroom. Um, and, and, and Tony, just to clarify, are you still in Williamsburg? Yeah, I, I lived for 30 years in Flory Pizziarello's building. Um, you know, and that's where the original Studio G um, is. And what um, was that diner called across the street? Kellogg's Diner. Kellogg's still Diner, there. yeah. I remember and that. Flory was Great. so kind to me. You know, I remember once she told me, you know, in like a Edith Bunker kind of accent, you know, you know, Brooklyn girl mm -hmm. born and raised. She goes, Tony, I know I could get a lot more for these rooms, Aww. but I don't believe in gouging people. Aww. So I've been in that, I've been in that building this whole time. I, I basically have the first floor. I have two of the apartments, you know, I kind of connected them. I gotcha. I gotcha. Wow. Um, so you're in Williamsburg. How do you get to They Might Be Giants? Um, well, what happened was um, I, met, um, I met Charles, the singer from the Pixies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was doing some work with Charles. Uh, we did a tour, and Charles was really into They Might Be Giants. So, so how, that's do you, how, how do you meet Charles, by the way? So what, what, is he another Pirubu fan? I'm, 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 I'm just curious. You know how I met Charles? The first time I met Charles, uh, Bob Mold Band, we're on stage at some place where we're headlining, and Charles comes walking across the room. And, like, we're... Uh, we're playing like a Led Zeppelin tune. Uh, and Charles stops until we get done. And then he's like laughing and shaking his head. And he looks up to us, he kind of waves at us and he goes, man, my band could never do that. <laughs> and fast forward a few years and it's the last Pixies tour before they're going to take a big break. And Charles asked Perubu to open for that tour. Oh, nice. So I got really close with Charles. Um, sometimes instead of traveling with the Ubus, I'd travel with him. Mm -hmm. And um, we, got, we got close. And, uh, and you know, when he. You when ended he, up playing bass on his first solo record, right? I didn't end up playing bass on it. I think what happened was Eric Drew Feldman played bass oh, yeah. and keys. And so then when, the, they, uh, when they were going to have the tour, Eric, who I played with in Perubu, uh, you know, and Charles uh, decided to ask me on. And so I did a bunch of tours with those guys. And the Giants, I remember the Giants opening for the Pixies in Paris. <laughs> so it was all kind of interwoven. Right, right. Um, and, you know, it was funny. It's just funny how that, how that works. Hey, there you are. Yeah, no, I, I, because we're only recording audio, audio I, was, I was not um, focused on the video, but why don't we just talk to each other, right? Right. And even though the listeners won't see us, well, you, I, I can, I can at least see you. Right on. <laughs> so, um, so you get to, you get to, you get to working with Charles. 
and Charles is a, they, they might be giants fan. And I know that just before I joined, they might be giants. I saw you on tour with Charles, like pl- playing music from the first solo record. Right. And you have some connections there as well, because Eric drew Feldman, wasn't he a member of Perubu as well? Yeah. Yeah. Eric, uh, made a number of records with us. And as a matter of fact, at that, at that Maxwell's gig that I described earlier, I think it was Eric on keyboards. Would you, right. would you imagine that? Is with that the right? With, with a big fro and a yeah. big old. Yeah. And he had some cool samples. Like at the time, you know, to get some cool, unique samples on your keyboards was very, um, it was just very, very unique. He had some like glass breaking samples and different things on his keyboard that sound like I was very wowed by it, you know? Yeah, he he had one of those Emacs's, which is a great, old, great sampling keyboard. And he's just such a fantastic musician. You know, Eric, you know, played with Captain Beefheart and he plays with the residents now. He's master musician he's he's uh you know what right right up there um okay so to tell us tell us how you get to they might be giants and then we'll, we'll officially talk about the tmb bg and then maybe wrap it up from there all right well so we were at a there was a party i can't remember what it was for but uh uh John Flansburg came up to me and said, Hey man, you want to join my band or something like that? And, <laughs> you know, and it just went from there, you know, you know how those guys were, and, they were so driven. And they, but was it just coincidence that you were in Williamsburg? They were in Williamsburg just a few, a few blocks away, literally. Right. Yeah. I, I drive, I bike past John Flansburg's apartment. I don't know if he still has it now. We're not going to name, we're not going to name the street, but I know the street. No. Yeah. But yeah, we go, I go down that street um, every day on my bike. And I remember John telling me stories, you know, about his coming to New York. Like, That's where, do, you, do you remember that apartment was where, that was the site where they had um, dial, dial a song? In, yeah, in Flans's apartment. Remember that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, I mean, I remember going to his apartment once, and he had a big computer monitor, like the biggest one I'd ever seen. You know, but it wasn't flat screen. It, of course, had the big tube. Yeah, in yeah. It. And it was like his to-do list and calendar—not a calendar, just a to-do list. And, it, you know, the letters were really big and it was so flans, you know. And I thought, wow, man, this guy's really, really, you know, busy. Yes, yeah. He, um, they definitely had a way of, I mean, they definitely did not sit around and wait for things to happen. And I, descri- oh. I often describe flans as like, you know, he's, he, he, he's the rainmaker. He makes stuff happen. But so tell us about, so lead us through. So do you guys have a, do you have an audition? Do you, do you just start rehearsing and then start, talk to us, tell us as much about TMBG as you want. Like I remember we were in Stoughton, Massachusetts, uh, Perubu and I, we were making a record up there. And, uh, man, everybody's calling um, yeah. and I remember the Giants, um, there wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't even an audition 
um, it was basically um, they gave me the the files like um, Linnell's bass lines and they said you know these are the songs you don't have to play them exactly like you know like the bass lines but this is these are the basic songs like with birdhouse in my soul and i remember making like this record with Rubu, you know and i was living at the studio and yeah i remember i would wake up and i'd look over the balcony and you know the lights would be off but all the lights on the console would be on mm-hmm. and I thought to myself man i wish i was just closer to the studio yeah, like I'd always yeah. feel so sad when it was time to leave. Me too. Oh man. You know, always. And there was a um there was a uh there was a a field, you know, close very close to the studio. And those were back in my days where I'd always like to run four or five miles a day. Uh, I remember our jogging. Our jogging, <laughs> uh, outings. Yes. Um, but so I remember jogging in that field all through the course of making the Pararubu record and listening to these uh, They Might Be Giants tracks and um, thinking, oh, man, this, this is going to be fun. Right. Had you, had you known of them? Were you a fan of theirs? I, I, I had seen them play a show at the old, um, what was that place on 5th Avenue and 10th? They had a big Oh, the Lone game. Star. The Lone, Lone, Star. Lone Star. yeah. I saw those guys at the Lone Star with their 8-track machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys were so ahead of the curve. <laughs> I know, I mean, they really people were. Are just, people are just doing that stuff now. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. <clears throat> so, you get into They Might Be Giants, and... Is your what are the first endeavors? Are they tours? Are they one-off gigs? Or what? What, what is it? Yeah, it was. Uh, it were some one-off gigs, but they were. They were. Uh, I can't remember. You know, I can't remember our first gig because that was with uh, Jonathan on drums. Might have been Maxwell's. You know. Yeah, jo- Jonathan Feinberg was their their first live drummer, technically. Yeah. Yeah, everybody. Everybody went through Maxwell's, but I remember um, we started touring pretty much right away because um, they had just made Flood and they wanted to tour, but this time not as two guys with a tape machine, but with a band. I remember seeing you guys on television on that tour on the Johnny Carson show. Oh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) On the Tonight Show. (laughs) Well, what was that like? You know, it, it felt, you know, it felt like just like really fun. And it was, I think, I think Doc did, did the, did the band, no, you, you guys played, you, you yeah, guys we played. played, right? Okay. But <clears throat> yeah, because sometimes Doc Severson, his guys would want to be the, the band. Yes. You know? Yes. It's funny. So I, um, mean, I think Conan was <clears throat> the same way, you know, we, we played all those shows. Right. Yes. So you, so what are some, what are some of the key moments or takeaways? And I think maybe we'll, we'll give the conversation maybe three, four more minutes, but um, is there, do you have any 
you know, me- specific memories of working with TMBG, things that, you know, you, you cherished or you never got to express or. I remember one time at the sound check, you were there. We were playing one of those meter songs that John Flansburg was really into. Mm-hmm. Sissy Strut. Sissy Strut. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Linnell comes up on stage with a cup of coffee in his hand. He goes, why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, I could just you know, see him do it. John Linnell, man, like what a genius. Yeah. Oh, you know, man. one thing that I'll never forget was when John Lake, when John Flansburg took me up to 48th Street Guitar and told me to pick out an acoustic bass to play so that when we were, because we were going to go on the road again, and mm-hmm. he wanted us to go to the radio stations All right, and yeah. play acoustically. And uh, you know, he bought me this beautiful Guild acoustic bass, and we were throwing it in the trunk, and he goes, ah, consider it your gold watch, Tony. Wow, <laughs> what, a, what a good guy. I Those think, guys were great, you know. Did you get the picture I sent? You recently of you and Flans in Times Square. Was it, I wonder if it was taken on that date. No, I didn't get that. Oh man, I, I, I think I emailed that? it to you and Flans. Um, oh yeah, resend that. I'll send, I'll send that again, but um, it's you guys in Times Square, like the classic Times Square photo, like right there in the, in the, in the island, like between yeah. 7th and Broadway or whatever. And yeah. uh, it's a, just a great, great shot. And um but I want I wanted to mention two things that I I had I I was more diligent, but I still have a blog and I would often write about my my recollections of you know music and playing gigs and stuff. And a long time ago, maybe like ten years ago, I I outlined chapters of a quote unquote book that I never wrote. And in the book, one of the chapters was going to be the genius of John Linnell. Yeah, and you just you just mentioned it. And but the other chapter was going to be travels with Tony. Wow. Because we spent so much time in what was it, a Crown Vic or what? Um Crown Vic. No, um it what was. was the other car. No, it was a Lincoln Town car. Oh yeah, Lincoln Town car, but it was usually a Crown Vic. It was yeah, it was either a Crown Crown, Crown Vic or Lincoln Town car and I I I I, I described the situation to to uh, pedestrians who are not in the music business that that you me you and I did not enjoy touring on on the bus it because we re- realized it gave us no freedom whatsoever yeah right? and and I think that the Johns also did not enjoy touring on the bus so we, you and I had a big chunk of our touring was just the two of us in the car together. Because yeah, remember all through Florida it was like that. Remember? Yes. Down in Florida. Yep. Yeah. And then and we were using Flans' Crown Vic because he bought one. And then he and Linnell were in the town car. And sometimes okay. we would switch. <laughs> but not that often. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, I mean, it, it's um uh, we, you, we listened to a lot of music together. We listened to, you know, we like dissected a lot of songs together. We, we would uh, debrief about last night's gig, you know, things that are like people that were at the show. And in this travels with Tony chapter, I wanted to discuss with the reader about, about your guest list. Tony's <laughs> guest. <laughs> because, 
just the story is is that because you you've toured so much and for me let's say that the one of my favorite small smaller towns was Columbia Missouri right oh i remember and, columbia yeah it was the skeletons are from there really well great yeah. great like secondary city right so there yeah. are these cities that we would show up to and like for me it would be my second or third time playing gigs there with like between the giants and other bands but for you, that had been like your 10th time, you know, or like your 15th time. So you knew a lot of people in all of these cities and you would just, uh, you know, um, our tour manager would come through the dressing room and, and ask us for the guest, guest list, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got anybody for the guest list? And be like, yeah, and it would just keep going on and on and on. 15 know, people were- on the guest list. <laughs> I know, but, but for a place like Columbia, it wasn't a problem. But no, I know, got- I know. When you got to Maxwell's, it would be a Yeah, problem, when you got to Maxwell's you know? or you got to New York or Los Angeles or, <clears throat> you know. But um, I have a great rec- recollection of that and just, um, and just having a lot of fun playing music with you on stage. Because often, I mean, Linnell and Flans are often kind of like running the show. I mean, they're singing, they're playing, they're entertaining, they're interacting with the audience, they're setting up songs, they're counting off tempos. So it's was left to me and you to like do all the other stuff, like have fun, act, act silly or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Those were great. Uh, those were great shows, man. And it's funny. The giants treated us so well that in some respects they spoiled me yeah. for, yeah. for going on. Like, because these offers were coming in at half of what, um, the Giants were paying, yeah. and that was one of the reasons. That wasn't the reason why I started the studio, but it was certainly the reason why I kept at it because we have to diversify at that point, right? I mean, I'd been touring since 1977, like right. basically nonstop for that was coming up on like 20 years almost of 20 tours. years, yeah. And yeah. uh, you know, I just didn't. I felt like I wanted to have a little more control yeah. over my own life. Yeah. That's I, what um, it was. Recently, the Giants released the John Henry demos as, wow. a, as a commercial release. And, um, and I've heard, I, I heard bits and pieces, but correct me if I'm wrong. We recorded a lot of those at a studio called Excello in Williamsburg, right? Yep. Excello. Yep. And um, so, do you have any re- recollections of recording demos for John Henry or perhaps our actual Woodstock or Bearsville John Henry sessions? Particular memories, particular songs you enjoyed more than others or anything that stands out? What was that one song we did the video for in the East German TV station? <laughs> Snail Shell. Snail shell. I always love that song. <laughs> that was fun. I described that to people. What I mean, maybe you, maybe I remember this vividly. But the director kept asking me to shut my eyes. Yeah. So play the drum. No, no. Do another take. Drummer, shut your eyes. Shut your eyes. And then when you looked at me on the video, it's just like I have my eyes shut. I mean, <laughs> but I'm, I, I wonder, like, for what? Okay, I can sh- shut my eyes for what? But yeah. Um, yeah. I remember being there and what about like, what about any, were there any like out 
you know, big festivals or anything that we played with the Giants that stand out in your mind? That one, didn't we play at the Wolf Trap in front of 45,000 people? Not the shed, but it was the same promoter, but it was an outdoor thing. And I remember there were 45,000 yes. people there. Yes. Um, I don't remember where that was, but yeah, I, that was, we, we played in front of some very large audiences. I, I always describe They Might Be Giants to others as like the band that's always good for drawing like a thousand people into a club, but they could also draw like as part of a festival act, like yeah, tens of thousands of people, right? Would come out. And you know, and the Giants, they have the staying power that no one else that I've ever worked with does because my nine-year-old, when he told people that I played in They Might Be Giants, these kids in fourth grade were going yeah. off. Yeah, it's like so, a new band. <laughs> I mean, those guys are amazing, you know? I, um, <clears throat> I'm going to text you the picture of you and Flans in Times Square. And then I'm going to text you. I recently, like in the last year, this past January, I, I, I went to go see the Giants. I don't know if I told you about that. But um, I, I had just spoken to you. So I gave them your regards. Thank you. Um, and they sounded, they sounded great. They, they were like, they were, and, and they, it was like, an, like a flood anniversary gig so they played all the songs from flood and those are a lot of the songs you mean you and i played a lot of songs from flood lincoln and apollo 18 right yeah and, and john henry so that's kind of kind kind of our 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 era um so before as we wrap it up is there as for those listening is there any are there any things you're working on currently that you'd like to spotlight and is there any way for people to like find your work, find you on social media, or maybe even get in touch with you? Well, the Studio G website, the Studio G Brooklyn website, is always the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, I made a record um, that got nominated for a Grammy last year with uh, Natalie uh, Yoshim. It's called Fam Diaiti. It's, um, this is uh, the women of Haiti. It's uh, like the French Creole for the women of Haiti. It's the okay. songs that Natalie heard when she grew up in Haiti. And uh, we, did, um, we did the tracking at Steve Albini's place, um, Electric Audio in Chicago. And we did it with the Spectral String Quartet, okay. who are headquartered in Chicago. And um, mixed it here at Studio G. And I'm very proud of that record. And that's a record that you can, you, know, you can listen to it on Spotify um, quite easily. Nice. Um, uh, and I have several things that are going now. I have a project with a friend of mine, Ruben Amer, who lives in Ireland, and uh, Marcus Cummins, who's a saxophone player, lives here in Brooklyn. Uh, Ruben plays guitar and sounds and sound effects and stuff. We made a record, it's called MRT. Um, and that's gonna be on Spotify by the end of the month. Um, and um, that's something, that, that's a record I'm very proud of. Nice. Um, and, then, and then I made a record with my friends, John Petro, 
and Lynn Wright. It's just called Gachupin. Uh, it's like a Mexican word, G-A-C-H-U-P-I-N. That's a fun record that you, that's also on Spotify. Very nice. Yeah, so lots of different stuff Staying going busy. on. But, you and know, I'm trying to stay busy. And you're also uh, mixing. You're also, I mean, you're producing, you're mixing, you're, you're playing, you're part of integral parts of these um, ensembles and so on. So you're very, very busy. And, and a dad True. as well. <laughs> True. But I think, you know, my parting, my parting advice to everyone would be don't forget to breathe once yeah. in a while. Just feel your breath go in and feel it go out because yeah. it's the most, it's the most important thing, most important part of our day. And it's the thing that we never think about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, do that and it'll be, it'll be a better day. Thank you, Tony. And I want to thank you for uh, being here and having this discussion with us and being my guest. This is my first podcast that I'm recording and um, I want to thank you so much. And, and I, I know everybody's going to get so much out of this. Pleasure talking with you, Brian. And then uh, I'll, I'll trim it and I'll, I'll let you know when I up upload it. Well, um, did, did you stop the recording? No, I'm going to do it right now.